pray, and we're going to jump straight in. Abba, Father, thank you. Lord, this is a mystery that we could somehow be in you and find our identity in you. Would you please bless and give great care, Lord? I know right now there's a lot of, a lot of broken hearts in the room right now. And there's some folks here that, man, they got it good. Life is wonderful. They've, they've got strong faith. And they're fully identified with you. They, they're doing so well. Lord, we need them to be strong where people are weak this morning. Please give us grace. Holy Spirit, do your work. And go to those secret places and hearts here that, that only you can go. Please, in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> all right. So bear with my voice as I work through all this stuff. All right, self-esteem. So if you remember from last session... Self-esteem functionally is a kind of seeing of myself as you see me. So if I see Terry Hughes seeing me and, and Terry gives me gestures, whether it's a verbal cue, a social cue, physical gestures, and I go, you know, Terry likes me. I can tell, you know. Well, Terry makes me feel good about me. And, and in that dynamic, I'm going to draw worth from Terry. I like being around Terry because Terry helps me like me. Well, what if next Sunday, you know, Terry's rolling his eyes. Oh, brother, uh, there goes that idiot in the pulpit again saying stupid stuff. You know, and all of a sudden, like, well, I don't think I like Terry anymore. He does, he's hurting my feelings, right? That's, uh, that's evidence that I'm driving worth from Terry. I'm telling you, folks, that's dangerous business. Okay, it's very fragile, very delicate, and can be very dangerous, all right? So you want to be real careful. The fact is, we've got a lot of people watching us. You know that? We've got a lot of folks, a lot of eyes on us, and it's really good to take, uh, to take an honest look at things. Now, one final word, and I'm going to jump straight in. We just finished up about two year, a two-year journey through Romans, okay? And it might appear that, you know, boy, Chris really isn't getting into a lot of Scripture this morning. Bear with me. It's our, it's our pattern and habit to go deep in Scripture a lot. We serve a lot of stake up at Christ Church. But for today, we're going to pull back a bit, and I'm going to share some Scriptures at the end. All right, so let's dig into what's going on here with, with Christ's team. Reminder, we covered a lot of neuroanatomy last Sunday, that our brains are wired for relationship. Louise Causalina says there's two synaptic gaps, Jeff. There's the one between the neurons and the synaptic gap between my nose and your nose. <laughs> the second synaptic gap. And we're all kind of doing what's called transference this morning. We're all looking around, kind of checking each other out. Eye contact, smiles, grins, pats, handshakes. We're doing what people do because we're neurologically wired for relationships. I talked about last Sunday that a newborn's visual acuity is designed for about 8 to 10 inches apart. Just at the distance of mommy holding her baby or feeding her baby. God's smart. He knows exactly what that baby needs and gives that <coughs> newborn the ability to recognize mommy's face right out of the womb. You know, right about age two, that little guy, little girl really needs dad. Dad kind of comes in on the scene and dad can be a, will become a critically important part of that child's life, especially around age two. First two years of life, man, it's all about the mom. All about mommy. But around age two, that child really develops a deep need for dad. You know what? A healthy child needs to see maleness and femaleness in a healthy marriage. It's just good for us when we have that, that experience. And so 
All right, what about today? Uh, let's talk a little bit about our culture and advertisement. So uh, a digital advertising company did some research in 2016. You ready for a shocker? If you're a normal media user, meaning you're watching the average amount of TV uh, than an average American will, per day, you're watching about four to six hours of TV a day. Okay? And now that can be casual use, like the TV's going on in the background while you're you know, doing your thing, or, or you're sitting down and, and you're binging on Netflix. Nobody here in a crowd of this size would ever binge on Netflix, uh, I'm sure. No raise of hands. And uh, are you flipping through Facebook? You're just doing this. Okay. Instagram, Snapchat, all the platforms, all right? You ready for this? If you're an average user, you're going to be exposed to 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day. <laughs> How's that for a shocker? A day. Now, that includes just seeing the, the Facebook icon. That includes seeing the Wendy's sign as you drive by and billboards. And it includes everything, all the branding that goes on around us, okay? Uh, there's some brand. Some of you are flashing and representing some brands today, you know? Might have a little North Face here in the room or, or maybe uh, various things. And look at, we've got Bruce. He is styling. Look at that guy. So uh, we do it all the time. Our hats. Uh, Laura McCormick. Is Laura here? Where's Matt? Where's Matt? Your, wa- your wife was dressed exquisitely yesterday. She had an Alabama football hat on yesterday at Starbucks. You know, Nick Saban, I mean, come on, roll tide, right? So it, it, it just happens all day long. And we're so cultured in it, we're, we're not even aware of what's going on, right? Now, we're a little bit silly to think it doesn't have an effect on us. It really does. It does have an effect on us. Anybody notice the collar on the Wendy's icon girl? What does it say? Mom. Mom. By the way, who makes a food choice for a little child? Mom. <laughs> so Wendy's created this little psychological nugget, because they know that, that Wendy's is so good, mom would go there. <laughs> Even a mommy would go to Wendy's. And while you're there, grab a Frosty, right? And so here we have it. It's, it's our culture. All right, now, um, <clears throat> let's talk about a sud scale. A sud scale is a subjective unit of distress. It's a severity scale. The higher the number, the more the severe the problem, all right? Now, this is normal stuff. In every hospital you go in, uh, you walk into the ER, and you've got the cry face chart. One is a happy face, and 10 is the major cry face. That's a suds chart. It's a subjective unit of distress. It's what you think is painful, right? And so some of you men are so stoic, you could take a root canal with no Novocaine because your chest hair is so thick, it just pain doesn't even enter your body. You're so tough. You're just that kind of guy. The girls are going, ew, right? And, and others, the thought of going to the dentist makes you have a panic attack, right? So it's a pain scale or it's a severity scale, 10 being the most severe form of that, right? Well, DSM-5, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Psychiatric Disorders, current one, 2013, has a uh, criteria spelled out for uh, an actual diagnosis called Dependent Personality Disorder. And this is when self-esteem is absolutely off the charts, catastrophically bad, all right? This is the epitome of a parasitic relationship. You know what a parasite is? Like a tick? 
It feeds off of a host, right? So this is when we're getting parasitic in our person eyes. And by the way, I'm using some really, really strong language this morning. I am not projecting any diagnosis on anyone in the room, all right? We're just, we're just talking. We're thinking. We're learning right now, okay? And how self-esteem is so deeply impacts us. Now, if you're at a level one, you enjoy healthy relationships with yourself. You feel good about yourself. There you are looking in the mirror, your spirit, your soul, your body. And you know what? You're reconciled with you. You feel good about being you. You're happy. You're good. You're not, you don't look at the mirror and, and you're ashamed at what you see. You've become best friends with yourself. That's healthy. You should have that uh, healthy relationship with others. And then certainly God. That means healthy boundaries. You know how to say yes. And you know how to say no. There's boundary and it's healthy. And you also have a good balance in being uh, you present a need. Someone provides for you or they present a need and you provide. It's good equilibrium. It's not all giving. It's not all taking. There's balance in your relationships. Makes sense. This is when things go well. Now, let's look at uh, the, the criteria for dependent personality, right? So this is a per- pervasive. That's a key idea. Please hear the lingo here. Pervasive. This is going on all the time, every day, all the time. It's not, you know, once a month or once a year. Pervasive, excessive need to be taken care of that leads to submissive and clinging behavior and fears of separation beginning in early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts as indicated by the following. You ready? Kind of scary. You sure you guys can handle this? All right, here we go. Has difficulty making everyday decisions without an excessive amount of advice and reassurance from other people. Now, please frame this in. We're talking about things that are excessive. They're acute. They're chronic. They're off the chart. Make sense? Because I go to Lisa all the time. Hey, Lisa, what do you think about this? Or this, that, you know, talk to you about it. We're not talking about that healthy stuff. We're talking about when it's excessive and it's addictive. All right? Needs other to, res- to assume responsibility for most major areas of his or her life. That's not good. When this person's self-esteem, their self-worth is so low, or they have become so parasitic in their attachment that they can't even jumpstart their day. They can't get out of bed. They can't initiate and, and get started on the major areas of their life on an adult level. Now we're getting into some pretty serious stuff. Three, has difficulty expressing disagreement with others because of his or her fear or of loss or supportive approval. If I disagree with you, you're going to be mad at me and I can't get approval from you. So I'm, I'm going to agree with everything you say. I'll be pathetically compliant so that I don't risk you being upset at me. Has difficulty initiating projects or doing things on his or own. Goes to excessive lengths to obtain nurturance and support <laughs> from other people. Feels uncomfortable or helpless when alone because of his or her exaggerated fears of being unable to cope. Exaggerated fears of being unable to cope. Urgently seeks another relationship as a source of care and support when a close relationship ends. People with low self-esteem, 
people who really kind of have addictive dependency, almost parasitic kind of dynamics in their relationships, oftentimes cycle through relationships quickly. They, they enter in, they get real close, and, and they, they feed off of a relationship. Something goes awry, there's an offense, and all of a sudden they hate their guts, and they peel away. Then they got to find somebody else, and they're doing, their relationships are like this, cycling through relationships in a really unhealthy, it's an indicator that something's not right. When our relationships should, should, could be, should be more stable and more balanced. And sure, you're going to get some of this, but this, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you stuff is never, never healthy. All right? Last one uh, is unrealistically preoccupied with fears of being left to take care of himself or herself alone. alone. And it's an unrealistic, debilitating kind of thing. All right? Now, if you're like me, guess what? I move up and down on this scale every day, <laughs> right? It's not like you're a level one and you stay a level one all the time. Are there times, did anybody, can I, can I just tell you right now, I identify with some of the stuff in, in the DSM. I really do. I identified with, like, wow, there's times I feel like that where I really need some assurance. I just need to know I'm loved and I'm secure. Does that mean I have that, that diagnosis? No. No, it's a spectrum, it's a sud scale. It may be a given day, given hour, you kind of move up and down on that thing, right? That's normal, that's being a human being, and there's nothing wrong with that. However, if you rock it up to a 10 and you stay there, we got problems. And it's good to, to see it, understand it, and as Cana said wisely this morning, to talk about it. It's really, really healthy, okay? Now, a couple of things about kids, I think you're going to appreciate this. Uh, the first expression of faith in a child is really toward their mom and dad. That's the first expression of faith. Uh, little children, little, you know, a toddler will look at mom and dad, and mom and dad are big, and they're huge, and you have to look up, and so they've got big faces. You know? And when kids draw pictures as toddlers, you've got this giant head and, and legs and little stick legs and arms. That's because... They see parents as big faces looking down at them. And they have magic plastic in their wallets. And they go to Kroger and they leave in bags and bags of food. And it's like mom and dad are like gods, you know. They just do miracles. <laughs> Little piece of plastic and they get food. I like it. And they buy me my favorite cereal. And I like mommy when she does that and gives me a treat. And they're almost godlike to a little toddler. Okay, they buy this is normal stuff, okay. This is normal, normal brain development and normal interaction. It's the first expression of faith when a human being believes a bigger, stronger, wiser person can care for you and be faithful to care for you. And that makes that child feel, I'm safe. I like this. Wow. And I like my feety jammies too. <laughs> Feety jammers are good. You know, a nice warm bath, soapy and fun, and you get rinsed off and get dried off in a towel, a warm towel. Oh my gosh, a warm towel, come on. Feety jammies and your stuffed animal and your blankie and you go to bed and, and mommy sings to you and daddy reads to you. Man, life is good. I like my, we call them sometimes godparents, don't we? You know? Isn't it funny how we use words like this? My mom and daddy are just almost godlike. 
But when the child gets old, older, and Jean Piaget talked about concrete operational thinking, and when a child moves toward abstraction, you know, if, if, we're, if we're doing well, we grow up and we begin to project an abstract faith on God. The one you can't see. You can't see him, right? I mean, really, can we be honest? You can't see him. You can see the evidence. Jesus said, hey, spirit blows. You can't see where it came from. You can't see where it's going, but you do see the trees move. So we see God's hand. We see him at work. But we've got to, we're in a place where we've got to wait. Can't see him just wrong. But we, with abstract thought, can put our faith that God is big, and he's got a credit card somehow, right? And God provides, right? I, I will provide all your needs according to the riches of my son in Christ Jesus for you. I, I will do this for you. And God provides, and he's bigger than we are, and he's smarter than we are, and he looks down on us, and he's got a big face, and we put our faith in God. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. Does this make sense? Not at all. And how in the world are 13 children when a 29-year-old weighed like 80 pounds, okay, looked like a, a tired teenager at the age of 29? How are you going to explain the goodness of God to those people? Right? Um, by the way, and you can. Don't misunderstand my rhetoric. Okay? You can. Now, you know what? For me... And the disappointments I had with my dad and my mom, guess what? It made me go running to God. It, God made so much sense. I went running to him regardless. <coughs> but for some people, it's awfully hard to make the jump. It's awfully hard. That if my parents are this way, and I really can't trust them, how in the world can I trust God? And it's hard. By the way, um, I'm, I'm assuming you're aware that uh, the New Testament talks a lot about hindrances to faith. We can disturb faith, can't we? Yeah, from drinking wine that causes your brother to stumble or drinking meat that causes your, your brother to stumble. You have various things in the New Testament that talk about certain things we do and say can really upset faith in another person. We're pretty silly to think an abusive mother and a passive father or an abusive father and a passive mother or just abandoning moms and dads are not going to have a negative influence on a child. Pretty silly to think that that's not a big deal. It's a very, very, very big deal. And it's what I deal with every single day with my caseload. Every day, this is what I deal with. Okay. So... By the way, just, uh, just as a case in point, we as a church can make up for a lot of damage that mom and dad have just done. And that's a beautiful thing. So, all right, what I want to give you right now, I've got to so watch the time. These are some characteristics that we engage, I think, consciously, Jed, and even unconsciously, we do this stuff. And sometimes revealing dependency, even to the point of addictive patterns and how you relate to people. Okay, you ready? And sometimes reveal a lot about low self-esteem. Number one, you have the chronic sense that you're constantly being watched. You're always being watched. I remember asking one of my clients decades ago, I said, you know, I'm listening to you. 
I get the idea. Do you think that there's like invisible cameras following you, following you everywhere you go? And they said, yes, that's exactly it. No matter where I go, it's like there's imaginary floating cameras watching me and assessing my appearance all the time. Okay. Secondly, I'm dominated by an external sense of myself. I have the hardest time looking at the inside. It's all about the outside for me. You know, Jesus made a comment about Pharisees and that you make sure that you're whitewashed on the outside, but on the inside you're full of dead men's bones. Or when you do the dishes of your life, yeah, you'll make sure the outer part of the cup is clean, but the inside of the cup is filthy, and you, won't even, you don't even want to look inside. Third, I'm always comparing other people. Not only do I believe I'm always watched, I reflexively compare and judge other people. For example, I judge them based on external things like their nationality, skin color, age, language, primary and secondary sexual characteristics, physical health, what they drive, how they drive, what they wear, and how they look walking and what they wear. You know? I'm, make, I'm making judgments calls, calls all around me, and I have no idea who these people are. And I'm judging them. I have no idea. You know the don't judge a book by its cover thing? Wow, we're really good at critiquing the dust jacket, but we don't ever pick up the book to read it. We have no idea what's going on with these people. No idea whatsoever. We actually, for, we actually believe, this is crazy, we actually believe that we are somehow happier and better people in certain clothing, in certain outfits. It literally makes us happy. That's really kind of a fascinating idea. Um, pattern of short-term relationship, which includes being easily offended. Easily offended. A part of that is this. You derive emotional gratification when you get a chance to correct people. You love correcting and exposing other people as being wrong. By the way, when a child uh, experiences trauma, and remember, they may be in that concrete stage of thinking or moving toward an operational stage of thinking and moving toward understanding abstraction. When a child experiences trauma, we're talking about abuse, they watch mom being abused or dad being abused, whatever it is. The first thing the child does in their little child brain is, is try to explain it. Why is this happening? This is odd. And their little forebrains are firing up trying to make sense out of what's happening. And so two things tend to form. They form what's called projection, or they form a thought pattern called introjection. This is what little, little toddlers can do this. Toddlers. Here's projection. Whatever this thing is, it's bad, and it's somebody else's fault. <laughs> it's daddy's fault, or it's mommy's fault, or it's the neighbor's fault, or it's the devil. It's somebody's fault. And they become projective, and, and they become people who learn how to blame. And they blame. And that becomes very gratifying, by the way, getting to blame other people. Okay? But then you've got the other toddler that goes, oh, Mom and Dad, you're fighting. Oh, it's my fault. And they become introjective. And everything's their fault. And it's like the syringe of guilt. They go, okay, okay, give me, give me the shot. Yes, inject blame in me. It's my fault. And the projector, they've got the syringe. They like to blame others. And they have major anger issues, okay? Introjective, it's all my fault. You're right, I, I'm one screwed up, messed up person, and it's, 
it's all my fault and my problems are all my fault and, and you're right and I'm so sorry. Please forgive me for breathing air on planet Earth. I'm sorry. And the projective is, well, you're right, yeah, and you don't deserve to be breathing air on planet Earth. Look at you. There's your projective person, right? We actually do this stuff, and, and the projector loves to correct. The introjector loves to public admit they're wrong. They like that, okay? You ready? This is one that moves into faith. This is number six. My worship is muted. I mute and I hold my worship back. You know why? Because I'm being watched. <laughs> and I'm embarrassed. Like, you know, maybe, maybe for you, if you get, and Stephen's going to, listen, they're going to sing some songs today that just, man, couldn't ask for better stuff. And you just think, God, if I could just touch you, just touch the hem of your garment, and your heart is just, mm, you want to do that. But you know, you don't dare because... You're being watched. Those cameras are everywhere. So your even worship is muted. It's it's restricted because you're still so worried about what people think about you. Number seven, you believe that the good things of God's word apply to other people, not you. (laughs) Like faith is good. Faith is real, but just not for you. Because after all, you're an interjector and it's all your fault anyway. <laughs> so you can't expect any good thing from God, right? <clears throat> Eight, you chronically seek out compliments. And for those who do ministry, whether it's on a professional level or you're leading ministries, children's men, all these things, sometimes our ministry efforts are held back because we're afraid of rejection. Can't handle it. So even our ministries are, are muted or your real motive for doing ministry is to get public attention. You want a following to make you feel good because your ego is so damaged. Okay. So what about some scripture? What does the scripture say about these things? Well, check this out from Matthew. Now the feast, or excuse me, now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For Pilate knew that because of envy, they handed Jesus over to him. Soak that one up. You get the same thing in Mark's gospel where uh, uh, his tradition says the same thing. Can you imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the best of the best in Israel, in Jerusalem, they decide they've got to lead out in an execution action against Jesus Christ because the real motive behind it is they're jealous. They used to be the go-to people. If you want wisdom, if you want to know how to connect with God, you go to a Pharisee. You go to a Sadducee. The Sadducees were in the temple. Go to the temple, see a Sadducee. You want the truth, you go to a Pharisee. They know the law inside and out. They're the people. And guess what? Cultural opinion shifted. And it began to move 
from the best of the best, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and it moved to some redneck, low-level carpenter out of Nazareth who was born out of sexual scandal? That guy is the one that connects you to God? Yeshua? Jesus? The Nazarene? The son of Mary? we got a problem. How's that for self-esteem issues? How's that for a parasitic personality? And these guys couldn't handle it because Christ was devastating their egos. Look what he writes in John. Let me try that again. I'm too quick with my thumbs here. Let's try it again. All right, John 12. Now these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. Pay attention. Many of the rulers. So there was a miracle. Blind man uh, received his sight. And big exchange between the religious leaders and Christ and the disciples. As a result of this, rulers. Now we're talking about high-end people, possibly some Pharisees. If not Pharisees, there were lawyers, scribes, high-level people in church. They become believers. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be kicked out or put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. There it is. There it is. Now, if we claim to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, can you see how unhealthy it would be? And can you see how it even moves toward idolatry? When you look for people to be your source, do you see that, Steve? You look for people to be the the ones that approve you and give you the moral attaboy card, how dangerous that is. That if we're believers, you can't do what the world does. You can't buy into what the media says with the 4,000 to 10,000 advertisements a day. That if you own that, wear that, use that perfume, use that cologne, whatever it is, that you're somehow a better person that you're elevated in the eyes of other people, how dangerous that would be. Just a couple more. I want you to appreciate this. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is correcting and confronting the church at Corinth who had these little clubs, these little groups inside the church that were competing. And he says, I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food. For you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not able. You're not yet able. You are still fleshly. Uh, just in the sarkakoi, the, the fleshly people, people of the flesh. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, you are not, uh, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Boy, another example of people in Corinth deeply embedded in unhealthy self-esteem and not deriving worth from Jesus Christ. All right. I want to encourage you with this right here. Some of you believe that you're not worthy of being loved and I want you to know that's a lie. That is a pathogenic belief. It's a lie to believe that you're not worthy of being loved. Just as the Father has loved me, 
I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Stay put in his love. Make sense? You are loved. Profoundly loved. Now, you're the gifted body of Christ. You are the church. Take ownership of this stuff. I want you to speak as though God's spirit is speaking through you. How can we take ownership of this so that our worth, our esteem are anchored in Christ and we are properly encouraged by one another in seeking out the approval of God as opposed to playing into a lot of ego junk that we bring in the door on Sunday mornings. You're the church. I trust God's spirit in you. I ask you to speak as though God's spirit is speaking through you. How do we then live based on what we've looked at this morning? Uh, I really want to stand for this because it was important in my life. Uh, in talking with Pastor Chris, this has been a journey for me over the last three years, however long I've been coming to Christ Church. And the object, the true belief is becoming more Christ-like, to live like Him. And an incident happened on Friday. Uh, a guy knocked at the door, and I opened it, and he said, do you remember me? And I vaguely did, and it had been a guy who had trimmed trees and stuff like that. And he really didn't do a very good job. He didn't carry the stuff out to the curb uh, like he was supposed to. And he said, uh, my wife just threw me out of the house, and can I get some money for a motel? And my first instinct was to say, no, that's not happening. And I said, uh, I'm really sorry I'm not in a position to do it. And he said, okay, thank you. And he's halfway back to his truck. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Come here. And I put my hand in my pocket, and I took out the dollar bills that I had, and I said, this is all I got. Here you go. Take it. Uh, I hope it helps. And he said, thank you very much. I said, good. Uh, <clears throat> that was the first incident that I can remember that I was overcome by the Holy Spirit right then, right there, right now. Uh -huh. And I wanted to share that with you because 10 minutes later, it hit me. I'd only seen this guy once, and I really didn't like him very much. It didn't make any difference. Hmm. And take that for what it's worth, but it meant a lot to me when it happened. <coughs> Be open to it. Accept it. Um, it was a sort of life-changing for me at that point. <clears throat> Terry, I'm so proud of you. 
I'm so proud of you. Even a tough, hardened sailor with salt water in your veins. Advertising, guys. <laughs> Go Navy. Go Navy. <laughs> Thank you, Terry. Yes, Emily. I think there are probably a lot of people, myself included, that go through things in their past that they have a hard time reconciling with who they are now. And because of that, they never learn to forgive themselves mm -hmm. and they never fully love themselves and become best friends with themselves because who they see in the mirror, they say, oh, well, this may be who I am today, but there's still this other part of me, this darkness in me from before. And I really do think that when you're starting out just with anything, it's a very conscious effort at first. You know, you may repeat the same mantra in your head over and over, or the same verse. And one that I used was in Psalms, and it's David, and he's talking about, you know, who, who can perceive their unintentional sins, you know? And he says, search my mind and test me, know my anxious thoughts, and see if there's any offensive way in me, and then lead me in the way everlasting. Mm -hmm. And I just, I think it's spending <coughs> that time in prayer and consciously, and then eventually God will change your heart and change your mind, and it'll become second nature mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. you know, love him and love mm -hmm. yourself and mm -hmm. give yourself grace. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful, Emily. Remember... One of the characteristics of this person that's dependent or addicted to people is that they believe the good things of God belong to somebody else. And so it's almost easier to forgive other people. But to forgive ourselves, uh-uh, can't do it. So you're right, Emily, you've spoken truth. Mason Collar said the same thing in the 9 o'clock service. The very same thing. Yeah, someone else. Why does this matter? Chris? Yes, sir. <clears throat> There's a uh, theologian that I love to read, A.W. Tozer. He has a book out there called Knowledge of the Holy. Yep. And going over the different attributes of who God is. One of the foundations that he lays at the very beginning chapters of his book is that our perception of who God is defines us. Mm -hmm. Defines our worship, defines our actions, defines the very thoughts that we even have within us. And I would apply that to this, saying that those of whom have a misperception of who they are have a misperception of who God is. Because if we believe that God truly is who he says he is, then our reflection upon us reflects him. Reflects what he sees us as, rather than what we and all the invisible cameras around us view us as. So, again, playing off what Emily said, I completely agree with you, Emily, that as we spend more time in his word, as we spend more time in prayer and realizing who he truly is, we get the correct perception of him, and through that correct perception, we then perceive who we are through him and through his eyes rather than ours. Mm -hmm. That's so good, Caleb. Thank you. Someone else? Chris, I have something. Can you go to the yes. slide where it had those eight points uh, with the dependent personality disorder? Uh huh. I guess signs of it. Mm hmm. First one that you came to, just going to show all of them. Um, I've been just looking at this and I'm reflecting, okay, on myself. But as I'm reading through that, 
I have individual names that I can associate about their daily habit for all of these. Mm -hmm. So I know that your uh, teaching is kind of focused on the individual, but what if there's an individual that you can help that goes through this? This is their life. Yeah. So yeah. like, let's say number one, okay, an individual who has to ask permission about everything he does, about even down to the food he eats, and I'm like, really? Sure. <laughs> so sure. I mean, from the perspective of helping an individual, do we just need to focus their attention more towards Christ, and or is it more of a security issue? I mean. All the above, yeah. It's it's actually a little complicated, Tommy. So what you need to do is. Uh, we have neurons in our brain, really powerful neurons called mirror neurons and also spindle neurons. And they actually help us learn by watching and observing. You ready for, ready for groundbreaking information? You get somebody with a dependent personality disorder around you and they get to watch how healthy you live your life, that alone is healing. Sometimes it just helps to watch you, how you do life and how you make good decisions, yourself starting and you can make healthy decisions. Uh, our brains are really wired for that. Again, we need each other on how to do life. But sometimes, Tommy, it, it does uh, involve some counseling, possibly some abuse back there. For example, can you imagine if you had a parent that, that constantly corrected you and said, you can't do anything right. Why are you so stupid? Every, you, every, everything you touch, you break, <laughs> right? Everything you touch, you ruin it. And that's how you're raised. Well, then sometimes it's a little hard to make decisions as an adult because you're afraid you're going to do something wrong. Makes sense. So it's just layered up. It's just complicated. But when you live your life well and you love well and you share scripture and you talk and you build a healthy relationship, you can help anybody with all eight of these. Okay. And there's a little bit of this in each one of us, by the way. So the joke is you get your first copy of DSM, you read it and you go, oh my gosh, I'm totally messed up. I've got everything in this book, right? Second time, you go, everybody else is messed up. They're worse off than I am, you know? Third time, well, we're all, we're all messed up. It's, we get real trouble. You know, fourth time, there, there might be hope. A glimmer of hope, we're gonna make it through the day somehow, so. But yeah, this is everyday stuff, Tommy. I mean, there's a lot of names that we could pull up on this. <coughs> Lots of help. Truth, sharing truth, sharing scripture is so critical. President yes, sir. Um, I think it's kind of getting to the points of, you know, wanting to blame yourself. Like when you're talking about mom and dad fighting, you know, blame yourself for it. And also like struggling with feeling like you could be loved by God. I just think, I guess with the conversation we've had about parenthood, you know, through this and just the importance of, of the influence of mom and dad when raising kids. I just think, I guess for me also, I didn't have much of a father figure in my life. I was, I was adopted, but you know, my dad went in the picture much. I think it's interesting, even being adopted, just, there's a gap. You know, you're not, even, and as much as my grandparents loved me, raising me, there's gonna be a gap anyway. And I know as a kid, I blame myself that my dad left. I thought, there's something I did. It's my fault he left. I did something that made him hate me. And I really think that, I mean, to me, I think that's what made me struggle for a while about feeling like I could be loved by God, like it was my fault. And, um, you know, it's, it's definitely been a journey to, to experience his love more, you know, because when you think it's something like as big as that's your fault, it's kind of hard to recover yeah. from it. 
quickly. Yeah. You know. yeah. Daniel, thank you for saying that. Yes, Melissa. On the other side, is there a um, independent personality disorder? Oh, sure. Because narcissism. Yeah. No, not exactly. <laughs> I believe, like, I go, I've, go, I've gone through some of the sure. absent fathers. Abandonment. Syndrome, yes. And, yes. Uh, loneliness, and do you come to depend <clears throat> on yourself and not yeah. think you need anyone else? Yes. Yes. And you don't even know how to relate to the love of. Yes. Father God. Yes. Because yes. you don't know how to relate yes. to the love of a father. Yes. And it's not like a pity party, I'm saying. I'm just like seeing that you're, I'm thinking, it's probably another sermon for another time, but is yeah. there like a 180 spectrum yes. opposite? There really is, yeah. You get, it, it calls attachment anxiety, and it's when someone is so afraid to risk starting another relationship only to be hurt again. That you just you become a loner. You just pull back from everything, you know. Because if you put a safe distance between the other people, they can't hurt you. Is there hope for that? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. There's hope. Yeah. There's hope for all this stuff. There's hope for all the scars, all the pain, all the regrets. And by the way, things that you deal with, and I'm using the collective us that nobody knows about. Nobody. There's hope. Absolutely. And Chris, I think, I mean, you're speaking to that. I think it's hard because we're looking at our issues with, like, binoculars, magnifying glass. Like, it's this overwhelming thing that's separating us from God, whatever that is. You know, our self-doubt or our lack of faith or whatever, it's all enclosed in this, you know, this is the thing that when I die, I'm not going to go to heaven because of I know it, you know, I mean, that's like probably that people think about, um, you know, we all have those thoughts, um, I heard it said that, you know, if you're looking at it with one way of binoculars and it's huge, you know, you can just flip that and the other, if you sleep with the binoculars for the other way, it's really tiny. And that's how God is viewing your sin because his grace is so big. Yeah. And that's really like a interesting, you know, for me, a visual person, I see that and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's so true. You know, my sin of whatever is so tiny compared to the vastness of God's grace and love for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, I wanted to speak that because I feel like that's so true. Um, that you know, when you die, you love Jesus, and that sin is nothing compared to the grace mm. that has covered your life. Yeah, um, and I know that that's a very morbid thing to talk about, but it was very no, no. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. You know, that yeah. is an underlying fear that we have sure. that we didn't we didn't do enough. Sure, but we neglect the realization that yes. Christ did. Yes. Enough. Yeah. Uh, Christ Church, I'm so grateful for you that you're able to say these things and you're not so clock-eyed. It's okay if the Methodists beat us to the steakhouse, right? <laughs> Let them eat first. They, they're probably greedy people anyway. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Let them go. Let them go. Real life is happening, isn't it? Just what Daniel said. You know what, how huge it is what Daniel said? What he did? This is real. And I, I tell you, a lot of us are there. We're just not saying it. Okay. Or the pride issues that we have are so real, we're just, we're just kind of shielding and creating a foil right now. Does this make sense? 
So I, 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 need, I want you guys to get this. Would you please dare to believe that the good stuff of Scripture, the good stuff of God's Word, real faith, it's yours. It belongs to you just as much as it belongs to somebody else. Just as much as it belongs to the person that you think is the holiest guy in this room or the holiest woman has got their life together so well, I'm telling you, it applies to you just like them. There's not a sin. I don't care how morally perverse or to use modern lingo, how pervy it gets. It doesn't matter. The love and grace of God are real and can forgive that sin. They're very, nothing's going to separate you. The love of God is in Christ Jesus. We have to be careful in our, in our resisting the love of God that we might be trying to become gods ourselves and trying to be our own messiahs. And that's scary stuff too. Really scary stuff. I want to pray because, boy, we're going to sing. And you know what? I believe that your worship isn't going to be muted by imaginary cameras. Stephen, get ready. Abba Father, would you please bless? Would you please prepare our hearts to sing love songs to you? To say thank you for this amazing grace that you've given us, please. Lord, I love you and I thank you that you have given us worth through your son, Jesus Christ. Do your work, please, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.